0: Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website, evidencebasederrata.com. So tonight we're going to take a deep dive into the fairly recent past to talk about the story of a museum that never was, and the intrigue surrounding it. Ironically, it probably is for the best that it was never built, and unfortunately, none of the characters in our story are heroes. But the story is a heck of a tale, so I hope you won't mind coming along with me as we dive into 19th century New York City. Now, I want to acknowledge that the bulk of tonight's information comes from an article in the Proceedings of the Geologists' Association by Cools and Benton titled, The Curious Case of Central Park's Dinosaurs, the Destruction of Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins Paleozoic Museum Revisited. Now, we're going to stop first in England. Between 1853 and 1855, 30-plus statues were constructed in the Crystal Palace Park. Among them were the first four representations of full-scale, three-dimensional, active dinosaurs ever constructed, two Iguanodon, one Hylasaurus, and one Megalosaurus. Other statues included plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs that had been discovered by Mary Anning, along with pterodactyls, crocodilians, amphibians, and mammals, including a South American megatherium or giant ground sloth brought back by Darwin on the h m s Beagle Now of course, he brought back the fossilized remains. And what was then created were these supposed lifelike statues. Um, they were quite the sensation. Uh, they were visited on several occasions by Queen Victoria, along with her husband Albert, and they set off the first Dinomania to hit popular culture. The sculptor was Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins an internationally known natural history illustrator and sculptor. He was advised by the anatomist and paleontologist, Sir Richard Owen. And so uh, you can actually still today go and see these original uh, statues that were made for the Crystal Palace uh, Park and, um, they have been refurbished many times. So, uh, they're a little bit like, uh, Theseus's boat. Um, but <laughs> is it Theseus or is it Odysseus? I can never remember. Um, but anyways, uh, but they are still there and they are still based on the originals, uh, made by Hawkins. And so they were first built in clay from which molds were made. And then they were cast in concrete large sections were hollow with brickwork interiors. And famously, and you might actually have heard of this before, in 1853, to mark the launch of the display, Hawkins actually held a New Year's Eve dinner inside the mole mold of one of the Iguanodons. Now, again, by today's standards, the models were wildly off and represent a very clear, uh, Old idea that dinosaurs were just basically cold blooded lizards. So they look pretty much like big, slightly off, uh, lizards more than the dinosaurs that we think of today. And they were actually being scorned as inaccurate as soon as 1895. Um, and so they did not last long as representatives of what we thought dinosaurs looked like. And so, uh, in 1895, Othniel Charles, Charles Marsh wrote about them, uh, rather scathingly. And so Marsh and his rival, Edward Drinker Cope, uh, were basically fanatical dinosaur hunters and, uh, they are the two main players in what has been titled the bone wars, uh, which took place between 1877 and 1892. But that's a whole different story of fanaticism and financial ruin uh, that we will not be getting into tonight because we have our own story of fanaticism and financial ruin. <laughs> so... As I said, getting back to tonight's topic, in 1871, skeletons and models destined for display in New York's first dinosaur museum were destroyed before the museum was ever completed. At the time, the news um blamed it on the people who were actually responsible. But as time went on, it began to be blamed on William Boss Tweed. Now, if you're not a New Yorker or history buff, you might vaguely remember that name from a high school history lesson. At the time, Tweed was the head of the Tammany Hall political machine, which influenced and often controlled democratic politics in New York pretty much for a hundred years uh, though Tweed was obviously only involved during the tail end of it. And you probably remember them if you do for their rampant con- corruption. Um, but there's also something to be said for their progressive work with the poor and immigrants. Uh, though I would note that I feel like it was probably usually in a sort of rational self-interest kind of way uh, that would have probably made Ayn Rand rather proud, uh, (laughs) despite that they were helping the poor uh, and unfortunate. But Tammany Hall is again, not the subject of this story, though it too might be a good topic for another time. Given that there is this new research on it, because when I learned about it in high school, we learned about it as, you know, just this incredibly corrupt, uh, machine that is the, uh, prototype for all of the political machines that have come after it. And unfortunately, New York still has a problem with a political machine for Democrats. Um, Even though they have uh, in some ways switched sides, uh, it is still very much a political machine in New York that often uh, does things that you just don't understand why they would have done that. Um, But anyways, as I said, many later reports blamed Tweed, but new research has gone back to the original sources and found that Tweed most likely had nothing to do with it and that the act was actually ordered by a man named Henry Hilton. Hilton, a lawyer and former judge, was a notoriously odd man. The researchers note that Hilton exhibited an eccentric and destructive approach to cultural artifacts and a remarkable ability to destroy everything he touched, including the huge fortune of the department store tycoon, Alexander Stewart. Evidently, the destruction of Hawkins' New York City dinosaurs was one of many such crazy actions through his life. Hilton was not only bad, but also mad. And so it all began in 1868 when the commissioners developing Central Park enlisted Benjamin Water, Waterhouse Hawkins, late of the Crystal Palace dinosaur display, but already having departed for America to develop a similar display in New York. Hawkins arrived in America and began collecting fossils, storing them in a workshop near the park. But in 1870, Boss Tweed replaced the commissioners of the park with his own cronies. And it was Hilton and uh, another man named Sweeney who were then instrumental in uh, axing the plans for the Paleozoic Museum And firing Hawkins. So in a way, Tweed was very incidentally, uh, the cause of this because it was Tweed who installed his friends on the commission. So I guess you can lay a bit of blame on his doorstep. And so just two months later, Hawkins studio again was trashed and all of the artifacts and fossils within it were destroyed by a gang of workmen, apparently using sledgehammers. Uh, That comes up a lot in the uh, descriptions and they were either buried somewhere or thrown into a pond, depending on who you ask. Um, And so this remains one of the worst acts of uh, vandalism, which seems a, a small world in a small word in today's language, but uh, sort of harken back to its original idea of the vandals coming into Rome and sacking the crap out of it. <laughs> uh, so yes, the, one of the worst acts of vandalism in the history of paleontology and museum development. Previous accounts of the incident had always reported that this was done under the personal instruction of Boss Tweed himself for various motives from raging that the display would be blasphemous to vengeance for perceived criticism of him in a New York Times report of the project's cancellation. Co-author Mike Benton, a professor of vertebrate paleontologist at the University of Bristol in England, and one of the authors of the paper, said in a statement, when the researchers started looking at documents, they realized that this just wasn't the case. And you might be asking yourself, why is this so important? Why is this such a thing to be interested in? Well, other than the basic pursuit of truth, it's actually a great example of how a story can be amplified and shaped by misinformation and the original facts can be buried in favor of a better story. It's also an important correction because it refutes some of the claimed motives of the actors and thus changes our perception of the climate at the time. And I would say that that's a pretty uh, important one. So let us start with Hawkins. Hawkins first off, there's a good chance that he left England for America because of the troubles in his marriages. Yes, marriages with an S. He was married to Mary Selene, Selina Green in 1826, but then fell in love with the artist Francis Louisa Keenan and falsely married her in 1835. He ended up having 10 children with Green and two additional daughters with Keenan. Apparently, he kept them in the dark by telling them he was going on long trips overseas for art projects. That is until the 1860s, when he decamped for America not once, but twice. First for his stint in Philadelphia and New York, and then again to settle for many years in Princeton, New Jersey, and actually spent most of the rest of his life in Princeton. Let us start in Philadelphia in May of 1868, where he began his work casting and mounting the skeleton of a dinosaur, Hadrosaurus fuci, for the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, or the ANSP. Here he worked with Joseph Leidy, a professor of anatomy at the University of Pennsylvania and curator at the Academy of Natural Sciences. He was in Philadelphia to gain access to the bones, the casts of which he would take back with him to New York for one of the dinosaurs he planned to display in the Central Park Paleozoic Museum, which is our uh, target museum here in our story. He took drawings and descriptions of the bones of the hadrosaur, as well as those of Lelaps Aquilungus, though thought to be a bipedal predator. Hawkins used his time at the workshop to develop the system of metal armature still used today to hold skeletons together while minimizing the amount of visible armature, so he created these steel apertures that could lie just under the bones so that you mostly see just the bones and there's very few visible supports. Um, and you know, we very much still use those kinds of armature to this day. And so he was the first to mount a skeleton in this way. Uh, so for instance, previously, the bones of the uh, hadrosaur had been displayed, basically just laid out on a table. And so the finalized mount was presented on November 16, 1868. Contemporary drawings at one point from the workshop in New York show that Hawkins used the skeletons of modern flightless birds as models for his bipedal dinosaurs. So while he wasn't 100% correct, uh, you know, his original dinosaurs were a little bit, uh, like basically giant Komodo dragons, uh, these ones were actually mounted much more, uh, much more truthfully. And uh, it was definitely seems that he had a true inkling in some weird way of what the future would hold for the modeling of dinosaurs. Now, the authors were able to source much of the information in their paper from the digitized notes of the Board of Commissioners of Central Park for the relevant time period. Thus, they know that Hawkins was commissioned to create a display similar to that found at the Crystal Palace, but importantly, featuring North American creatures. However, we also know that at the time, there wasn't actually a large body of native dinosaur bones to be had. This was, as noted, before the Bone Wars would discover the iconic dinosaurs we associate with the western part of the country today. So um, at this point, we just had basically what had been found on the east coast. And so no one had gone west yet. So all of the bone beds in the Dakotas and all of the other places in the west just literally basically hadn't been uh, mind for dinosaur bones, pretty much at all, and of course we also know that at the time um, we do know that uh, it was clear that this mounting was part of the um, part of his commission for Central Park. So he was sent there. F- by the commissioners of Central Park in order to um basically be able to get a cast of these bones. And so in the notes, it says, It may be observed that the molds of the entire skeleton of this gigantic creature, now the property of the commissioners of the park, are valuable as a medium of exchange with other institutes for fossils, which may form the nucleus of a geological museum that may arise in connection with the restorations now being made for the Central Park. So at this point, it was pretty clear that they thought this was a good deal. And now one thing to remember, though, is this This is happening before the changeover of commissioners. So this was the original board of commissioners working with Hawkins before Hilton and Sweeney were installed by Boss Tweed. Now, the display was so popular of the hadrosaur that Hawkins had to make five more specimens cast in plaster, one for the Paleozoic Museum uh, and others for Princeton University, the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, the Royal Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh and Edinburgh, and the American Museum or what would become the Smithsonian in Washington D.C. Now, initially Hawkins was set up on the top floor of the Arsenal building. Here he built the mounts for his two dinosaur skeletons, as well as forming the restorations of the hadrosaur and a giant deer, presumably in concrete as he had in England. Um, We know what was in the workshop, thankfully, from both illustrations and photographs from the time. So we actually have photographic evidence of what was in the workshop previous to it being um, destroyed. And so some of these come from when it was in the armory and some come from after he was moved, which we'll talk about in a minute. And so these give some clues that the models may actually have been made from a lighter material as well, with some being mounted on plinths and the hadrosaur constructed on a wooden pallet. Because these were destined for an indoor space, they may not have needed to be made from concrete and lead as those in England had, because those were meant for an outdoor park. Hawkins expected that the models would be positioned in dioramas, and we again have extant illustrations of his vision. By by January 1870, the site for the museum had been confirmed, but again, all of that was soon to change. In 1870 as well, Boss Tweed had ousted the old commissioners and installed his own men, including Henry Hilton and Peter Sweeney. Neither Sweeney nor Hilton seemed to have ever had any interest in the museum, and they began to move quickly to quash it. It's at this point that we should probably add another player to the game. In this case, it's not a person, but a Entity, uh, not really an entity. It's the American Museum of Natural History that we all know and uh love today. It just so happens that at this time another museum was taking shape, the a m n h the AMNH. And so this had been proposed by a group of philanthropists, including JP Morgan, Theodore Roosevelt Sr., and Alexander T. Stewart. Department store millionaire and benefactor to Henry Hilton. Now, we don't need a whole vignette on Stewart. Just uh, remember that he was a millionaire who trusted Hilton implicitly. The AMNH was the brainchild of the naturalist Albert S. Bickmore, a Harvard graduate who had been taught by the famous Swiss naturalist Louis Agassiz. And he had actually traveled to Indonesia in 1865 and 66 to write a book on the wildlife there. So do remember, this is right around the time of the Civil War, but uh, apparently pretty much no one in New York City uh, seemed to really be at all perturbed by the fact that there was a giant civil war happening. Um, In all of this, it seems very clear that nobody was really paying attention to the civil war, (laughs) Um, which is kind of weird, but um, definitely uh, seems that people were just not even really concerned. Uh, You know, this is right after the war, but it is still funny how there's uh, very little idea that anything has happened that has perturbed the way that the city works. And so this group had the backing, not only of millionaire philanthropists, but also Andrew Green, an original member of the BCCP, which is the board of the commissioners of Central Park and boss Tweed himself. And so Tweed uh, was interested in the American Museum of Natural History coming together and being uh, a part of New York and being on or in Central Park. Now, Green seems not to have seen any conflict of interest between the two endeavors, and it doesn't seem to have been a deciding factor in the demise of the Paleozoic Museum. However, the American Museum of Natural History had already begun compiling specimens and had, for instance, been gifted a whale skeleton, which will come back up later, and they asked the BCCP for space to store their growing collection. It was at this point that Hawkins was forced to abandon the arsenal, which was turned over to the collection of the AMNH and forced to... Him to regroup in a temporary shed with a forge. Now, the minutes of the board meeting of September 13, 1870 state that the architect in chief was directed to prepare a rough plan for a building adapted to the foundation already laid for the Paleozoic Museum, the building to be used for aquaria and paleontological spec- specimens. And so that was. Pretty much the uh, point in which we begin to realize that the Paleozoic Museum has been uh, basically, the idea has been quashed. And so once Hilton and Sweeney had come in, they basically uh, decided to rearrange things and were instrumental in having the Paleozoic Museum project ended. Now, Hawkins was actually initially kept on and asked to work on the designs for the Central Park Zoo. But when he wrote in December asking for the museum project to be reinstated, he received no reply. Now, the formal end to the project was written up in the annual report of the Board of Commissioners, the main factors cited was monetary. The building was estimated to cost around three hundred thousand dollars, which would be over seven point three million in today's money. The commissioners also noted that this was too great a sum to expand to expend on a building devoted wholly to paleontology a science which, however interesting, is yet so imperfect as not to justify so great a public expense for illustrating it, certainly not until the living animals in the charge of the department have been properly cared for. Now, this is an important point. At this juncture, the park had also accumulated a bunch of live animals, uh, that had basically been donated to the park, whether they wanted them or not. So some of them could be said to have been functionally abandoned at the park. And so, uh, at first they had been kept in an area informally referred to as the menagerie. Um, but they were eventually moved over to a place adjacent to the arsenal and the, uh, Ground floor of the arsenal was even used for a time to house some of the animals. And, um, this would eventually become the Central Park Zoo. But there is something to be said for the fact that because they had this animal problem on their hands, uh, there is a reasonable, uh, You know, case to be made for the idea that it was more pressing to work on creating the zoo than it was the Paleozoic Museum. And so all of this can be considered fairly above board. However, It's that second step that is the problem, which is the destruction of all of the bones and molds and everything that was supposed to be in the Paleozoic Museum. Axing the project is something that you could consider to be absolutely above board. It was, you know, you could consider it financial. You could consider the fact that they had, you know, pressing problems with Creating the zoo, and they wanted Hawkins to pivot to helping them with the zoo because, you know, you can imagine com- comical ideas of basically animals piling up in the middle of New York where with nowhere to go. <laughs> um, exotic animals at that. And so um, all of that can be made to say that there's a reasonable argument that this was, you know, just something that happened and there was no malice. There was no real issue. It's this second part where everything about the Paleozoic Museum was destroyed that is the heart of our tale. And in fact, to add to the issue of uh, fiduciary Uh, problems. This was also the time when the original architects of the park, William Olmsted and Calvert Vaux, were fired. So they were actually fired right around the same time. They were told that their services were no longer needed. Um, and so Hawkins, for his part, still held out hope that the project would be saved and addressed the New York Lyceum of Natural History on March 6, 1871, saying, By this procedure, the whole scheme of popular education, which he had been endeavoring to carry out, was annulled. He trusted only temporarily and thought in time the good sense of the people will awaken and they would realize the vast importance of the work. However, once again, the end was near. In the meeting minutes for the BCCP on May 2nd, 1871, Henry Hilton specifically ordered the workshop to be demolished. Resolved that the shed building on Central Park near 62nd Street and 8th Avenue be removed to the northeasterly end of the park, and that the old barn, shed, and structures at that place be removed under the direction of the treasurer, retaining only such as can be appropriated appropriated and temporarily used to advantage as workshops. And it further goes on to note that the shed was destroyed the next day under the direction of the treasurer, Henry Hilton. So let's talk about Henry Hilton now. He is our other main player. And again, Uh, There are no heroes in this story, I fear. As noted, Hilton seems to have been a bit of a loose cannon. While a commissioner at the park, he had also had a bronze statue of Eve at the Fountain by the sculptor Charles J. Innes painted white. At first, he asked Innes to do it himself. And of course, he refused. And so Hilton had it removed to the arsenal and painted white by a workman. Although eventually recovered and restored, the surface was damaged by the paint, um, which probably had lead in it at the time. Um, He also had the whale skeleton, which had been donated to the AMNH uh, collection, painted white (laughs) again. And again, he irreversibly damaged the artifact. Uh, So, yeah. Uh, the New York Times followed Hilton's exploits with fervor. And um, this is the other main source of information is the New York Times. And I'm telling you, some of these articles are fascinating. Um, I was able to kind of look up all of these articles and read them. And it's pretty impressive what was going on. Actually, before I read this Times uh clip... I think that we should take a break, uh, do some show promos and some PSAs, and when I come back, I will read from this uh, Times article, and this is just the first of several, so uh, it's going to be, again, a wild ride. Um, So do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state... In the country, we have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbslibrary.org or call 587 1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Welcome back to Evidence-Based Radio, and as uh, advertised, we are going to talk about this snippet from an article in the New York Times. These were merely the beginnings of that magnificent plan of improving the Central Park contemplated by Mr. Hilton. We are told that he seriously entertained the idea at one time and would doubtless have carried it out if his official term had not been brought to an untimely close of covering the whole park with a coat of white paint. There are lots of unpainted statues remaining in the park and elsewhere about the city awaiting the artistic touch of his white paintbrush. So, yeah, uh, Henry Hilton was a lot and people knew it. (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, it was too late for Hawkins' workshop. We know that Hilton was only a peripheral figure in the Tammany Hall ring, um, but he was still caught up when the Tammany Hall ring collapsed. Um, And so... This happened again, um, shortly after Hawkins workshop was destroyed. So unfortunately he almost made it, uh, but it was too late. And so while, uh, Hilton was not swept up in the arrests during the downfall of the ring, uh, he had to sweat to step down from the commissionership, uh, for instance, because his compatriot Sweeney was arrested and facing accusations of corruption. And I think he was uh, smart enough, at least in that moment, to know that he wanted to get out of sight and out of mind. Uh, But the New York Times uh, had been lambasting him and continued to do so even after his resignation. So part of, probably wanting to get out of there and lay low was the fact that the times was not going to let him uh, do anything without reporting upon it. And so they were uh, in part responsible for his having to resign. And so even after all of this had happened, uh, there was uh information talked about in the time. So it's undeniable that Sweeney and Hilton and others corruptly overcharged for materials and spent far more than their predecessors uh during the time uh that they were in charge of the coffers of the park's budget. And so the time notes that the commissioners spent six million two hundred and sixty Thousand dollars in eighteen months, while the old commissioners had only spent five million two hundred thousand dollars in thirteen years, and they were not constructing anything wholly out of cloth at this point. they had actually you know cancelled the Paleozoic museum they were working uh with the arsenal, but the arsenal already existed. And so, um, this is really, um, clear that they, you know, they were running scams, but again, that didn't necessarily have anything to do with the museum itself. Um, it's just kind of part and parcel with Hilton's, uh, personality and his, uh, set of morals, shall we say. And so because there wasn't any real reason, uh, you know, that comes to mind for why the, um, artifacts would have been destroyed, there must have been some specific ulterior motive in, Hilt- in Hilton's actions. And so because the project had already been defeated, those bones, casts, and drawings weren't really a threat. And they could have been actually given to, for instance, the AMNH. Uh, and so that actually pops up as the sort of obvious possible reason why Hilton might have, uh, been against the Paleozoic Museum. He might have saw it as a competitor. Um, though that seems a dubious idea because the Paleozoic Museum was never meant to rival the AMNH it was meant as sort of a distinct form of edutainment for the city, whereas the AMNH was meant to be a more serious scholarly place. And it seems that Hilton personally oversaw the installation of the AMNH's collection in the arsenal, including uh, basically offering advice on changes to the building, having certain things built specifically for them, um, and really seemed to be interested in hands-on work with that project. And so that leads us to another idea that perhaps he tried this sort of thing with Hawkins and was rebuffed. Hawkins was not an easy man to get along with either. Via letters, we know that he had a meeting with Edward Drinker Cope, uh, the famous paleontologist involved in the Bone Wars, and it was, well, not terribly successful. He wrote a subsequent letter to Dr. Edward Nolan, librarian at the ANSP, about the hadrosaurus skeleton being used in a later exhibit, and states, No cope interference with any of the bones or I will throw it down forthwith. So (laughs) it would be no surprise that if Henry Hilton had offered to, quote unquote, help Hawkins, that this would have enraged him. And since both of our main players were highly volatile, the events that occur seem to perhaps become less opaque. We also have correspondence between Hawkins and Hilton after the debacle, where Hilton repeatedly denies Hawkins' pleas for compensation. Now, I want to stress that we have no firm evidence of such an altercation, but the circumstances seem quite primed for it to have happened. As noted, Hilton was continually hounded in the press, especially the New York Times, and not just for his white paint adventures. They also dogged him for his noted ability to take over the estate of Alexander Stewart, worth some 50 million or almost a billion dollars in today's money and run it into the ground in just six years. Now, initially, Stewart left Hilton only a million dollars in his will, but Hilton convinced Stewart's wife to exchange her holdings on Stewart's fortunes for this one million dollars by 1886 the entire empire was in bankruptcy it's during this time when the time shows us that the man was even more odious than has already been described as part of stewart's ventures hilton received an interest in the grand union hotel on broadway at saratoga springs and in 1877 caused a scandal by refusing to allow the family of financier Joseph Seligman due to the fact that Seligman was Jewish. Now, Seligman had stayed at the hotel for many years prior, including when it was owned by Stewart. And although they had had quarrels, nothing seemed amiss. It was not until Hilton took over that the anti-Semitic rule was set in place. Now, it must be said that unfortunately, Hilton was not the only one whose attitudes towards Jewish people were appalling, and his actions actually gave cover to some of the other hotel institutions to, to create similar rules. Reading this particular article in the Times is not for the faint of heart. Sligman actually shows that he was the better business person, regardless of his ethnicity, by ending his letter to Hilton thus a little reflection must show that you are the serious falling off in your business, or that the serious falling off in your business is not due to the patronage of any one nationality, but to the want of patronage of all, and that you, dear judge, are not big enough to keep a hotel, nor broad enough in your business views to run a dry goods store. And so that turned out to be very, very true. Hilton's last large folly was the creation of an estate at Saratoga Springs called Woodlawn Park. He filled the 1,500 acres with 25 miles of carriage roads, a mansion, a ballroom, stables, barns, gardens, lakes, a clubhouse, and an athletic field. And he purchased numerous, uh, one presumes only white marble statues, including Hiawatha by Augustus Saint Gaudens, which is now at the Met in New York. And so Hilton issued maps and brochures for Woodlawn in hopes of attracting the public to it and most likely to show off what he had learned via his time at Central Park. He ended up dying at Woodlawn in 1899. And when this happened, the estate was basically left in ruins for many years until it was finally parceled off into six different parcels, one of which actually became uh, the campus for Swarthmore. So that's a fun fact. Now, the New York Times obituary <laughs> is Again, quite the read. It's titled in bold letters on the front page, Henry Hilton is dead. (laughs) And again, it's a bit of a wild ride. On the front page of the August 25th, 1899 edition, a full length column goes into great detail on the foils, follies and foibles of Henry Hilton. It continues for another full column, plus on page three. They note that he had been a lawyer of little prominence. He had occupied for a short time the office of a judge in the city, but he was chiefly known as the intimate friend and trusted counselor of Mr. Stewart. Now, uh, interestingly, they once again took the opportunity to bring up his anti-Semitism and his uh, feud with Seligman, but they make no mention of any of the affairs associated with the Central Park Commissioners, which I thought was really interesting. They spend most of the columns uh talking basically about how he had squandered away all of the money given to him by Stewart. What they do actually mention, though, is a wild incident where A.T. Stewart's body was apparently stolen from the vault in which he'd been laid to rest some two years earlier. They further note that there was no definitive report of the remains having been recovered, with inquiries lasting several years after the initial act. Which is just a fun tidbit. (laughs) So circling back to our original story... The remains of the bones and other items from Hawkins' workshop were dug up in February 1872 by Colonel Henry G. Stebbins, someone who had worked on the downfall of Tweed and became a commissioner of the Department of Public Parks after the removal of Hilton, Sweeney, and other Tweed supporters. He is said to have reported that The models were broken into thousands of pieces and basically were completely useless. A Times report says specifically that Hawkins put the blame squarely on Hilton and suggested he did the deed out of ignorance, just as he had a coat of white paint put on the skeleton of a whale and just as he had a bronze statue painted white. The piece went on to say that there had been outcry from other prominent scientists, including Professor Joseph Henry, secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, who basically said, I would have loved them. I would have bought them from them. What on earth are they doing? Um. So yeah, he's a little distraught, (laughs) as he should have been, because this is such a weird, weird thing to do. And like... You know, we talk about dinosaur bones being uh, fairly rare despite being in museums all over the place, because most of those uh, that you see in museums all over the place are casts of originals. And so, um, you know, every real bone is precious. And so if he had real artifacts there being studied that is incredibly upsetting that they were destroyed basically out of someone's petty idea of perceived uh slights or need for vengeance um and so this act did not uh you know it was not quickly forgotten uh it led to further articles Decrying the barbarous nature of the citizens of New York. And so, yeah. In an article in the April 1872 issue of The American Naturalist, they write What good will ever come to science from the millions of dollars it is proposed to spend on the new building for a museum of natural history in the Central Park? so long as the citizens of New York allow vandals and ignoramuses to hold the places that should be filled by men of culture and unquestionable scientific standing. Now, two decades later, the incident was again brought up in a book review in the New York Daily Tribune this time of the Englishman Henry Neville Hutchinson's Creatures of Other Days, in which the incident was mentioned with some minor mistakes. Uh, So Hutchinson notes that it was a mayor who uh, called for the destruction rather than Hilton. After the whole debacle, Hawkins himself moved to Princeton and stayed there for the large part, uh, working on recreating a cast of the Hadrosaur And created a series of oil paintings depicting prehistoric creatures and scenes. Now, it seems odd he may, that he never tried to sue the commission, but he did try repeatedly to obtain his lost wages. The authors of the current paper suggest it may have been that he did not want to publicize himself too widely due to the issues, the issues with his marriages and now largely abandoned, wives back in England. And so we circle back now to Boss Tweed and the significance of his being blamed for many decades for this act of destruction. It's undeniable that Tweed and his cronies made money off of the Central Park books it's also undisputed that he widely took bribes to grease the wheels of the city's bureaucracy. Historical paleontological accounts have traditionally pinned the destruction of the museum and its objects as a product of Hawkins' criticisms of Tweed, perhaps because he was an Englishman and Tweed's bread and butter was the Irish immigrants filling the city post potato famine. Sweeney, for instance, as his right hand man and a Central Park commissioner, was an Irish Catholic. There was also the fact that the commissioners had referred to the Paleozoic Museum using the term pre-Adamite, and this might have suggested that the destruction hinged on religious objections to the idea of deep time. But none of this turns out to be true. Boss tweeted much bigger fish to fry in this era. He was at the end of his rope and could see the fall coming very soon there is no indication that either anti-English sentiment or religious objections were the key factor in this series of events. It's important to disentangle this event from the history of religious-based objections to science. The 19th century was more nuanced and complex in its reactions to the new science of evolution and deep time than the stories of this event give credit. One other interesting factor is that the two museums could absolutely have stood together. The AMNH was again meant to be an academic institution, whereas the Paleozoic Museum was meant to be a more public venue for viewing replicas of North American prehistoric creatures. Most of those involved seemed to have realized this was the case. What does seem to have been an issue is the fact that the Board of Commissioners were more worried about the living animals thrust into their care than those of extinct animals and turned their focus to the creation of the Central Park Zoo. What would have been innovative about the museum was at this time, visual pedagogy in museums was just beginning. And even in 1890, when the AMNH showed painted restorations of dinosaurs, it was considered controversial. However, none of this accounts for the reason that the bones and molds were purposefully destroyed and buried, suggesting a personal rather than philosophical reason. However, there was one silver lining to all of this. Hawkins' depictions would have already seemed out of date within a decade had they been constructed. The dinosaur boon was just about to take place and change our idea about the species that would have once inhabited the American continent. Now, by the way, I don't have time to discuss it tonight, but I do want to acknowledge, uh, as you would do a land acknowledgement, that parts of Central Park were built upon the footprint of the Seneca Village settlement, which was a predominantly African-American neighborhood. A law had been passed in New York that required African-Americans to own land in order to be able to vote, and many used these plots as a way to enfranchisement, but also as a way to build community. They fought for two years to avoid the demolition of their houses, but were ultimately defeated and dispersed. And of course, this doesn't even begin to talk about how all of this is stolen native land, Um, obviously. But um, yeah, I think it's really important to also remember that despite all this interesting scientific uh, hullabaloo, uh, there were real people who were affected by the building of Central Park who had real consequences. Um, you know, the land was taken by eminent domain and they were offered money, but they were clearly offered less money than the land was actually worth, especially since they were African Americans with very little power, um, to be able to negotiate any kind of settlement. And so I think it's really important to remember that while all this was going on, real people's lives were being ruined, um, just so that wealthy New Yorkers could have a place to uh, walk around in fancy clothes and be seen. Uh. (laughs) So yeah, Um, that is all the time we have for tonight. Thank you for listening. Uh, This has been Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.